The ABC's Word Wizard. The Lord of Language. A Word in Your Ear. With Professor Rawley Sussex. It's that time of the day. The ABC's Word Wizard, Rawley Sussex, OAM. Emeritus Professor from the School of Languages and Cultures at the University of Queensland is here, willing and able to talk with you about words, language, and linguistics. One three hundred triple two six twelve is the number you can call. That's one three hundred triple two six twelve. A quick reminder: if you're listening on the latest version of the ABC Listen app, you don't need to remember the phone number. You can just press the call in button. And of course, that's the same app you can use to subscribe to Rolly's podcast. Rolly, good afternoon. I've already yeah. been corrected this afternoon by Sean at Orkinflower. Thank you very much, Sean, on the text line, who said uh, I incorrectly used the word fulsome earlier. Uh, I did describe the response that I expect you will give to our Ruby of Ipswich North as a fulsome explanation. <laughs> My intention was to suggest that your abundant uh, you know, intellect and consideration of the English language would provide Ruby with a really big response. I got a little carried away and I misused a word. Not to mention copious, yeah. Um, fulsome is tricky because it used to mean full and good. And then it did 180 degrees and started meaning over the top and insincere. So fulsome praise was really exaggerated and you didn't really mean it. And now it's coming back to mean full and sincere again. Oh, boy. And nobody knows what it's meant. It's wiser not to use it at all. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Rolly, on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. If you missed Ruby's question, we are visiting the classroom, the Year 6 classroom of North Ipswich State School today. This is what Ruby was so keen to have answered. My name's Ruby and I'm in Year 6 and my question is, how do words gain their meaning? What a great question, Rolly. How do you answer a question like that? The short version would take several days and the long version would take a year. But let, let's, let's have a look at some examples. Right, all this rain at the moment is the result of something called La Nina, L-N-I-N-A. And the N has got a little sort of wiggly worm on top of it, which makes an N into a Ñ. And it's Spanish and it means the girl child. And on the other side of the Pacific, in America and Chile and so on, they've got El Niño. And that means the boy child. Now, what happened was that people started observing that in some years it was very hot and dry on one side of the Pacific and it was rather wet on the other side. And since this happened at Christmas, they said, OK, well, we'll call it the boy child because of Christ and Christmas. And that was El Niño. And then they said, well, we need an opposite. So we'll have La Niña, the girl child, on the other side of the Pacific. And some years we have La Nina, which is what we've got at the moment with all the rain, and in America and Chile it's hot and dry. And then the, uh, temp the meteorological uh, conditions change around and the reverse happens and we get El Nino, which is dry and hot, and they get La Nina, which is wet. And so what we've done is we've borrowed a word from a country that had already worked out what was going on and gave us everything already, already if you like, pre-cooked. So borrowing words is something that we do a lot of, but that's not the only way how words get their meaning. Some of them uh, do a noise which is like the, the, the noise that something makes. So I have a Siamese cat. His name is Mao, M-A-O. And in Chinese, that is the sound that a cat makes and is the word for a cat as well. 
And then, of course, there's moo and woof woof and, and so on. Lots and lots of onomatopoeic words. O-N-O-M-A-T-O-P-O-E-I-A. It's a Greek word. But other than that, a lot of the words just happened by um, accident. They were uttered and someone said, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to call that thing. And this was going back thousands of years now um, to the parent language of English, about 4000 B.C., it was called Proto-Indo-European. It was spoken near the Black Sea. And from that, a lot of our words have come. For example, the word for brother in Proto-Indo-European was Brahater. And our modern word is brother. And in German, it's Bruder. So that you can see there's a sort of similarity there in how the word has you know, changed over time. So we borrow. We get words originally. We have some onomatopoeic words. Sometimes we look at something and say... I reckon that looks like something we've already got. <laughs> so when they invented the computer mouse, they looked oh, at it, yes. right? And it had a little box with what looked like a tail coming out at the end of it. And they could have invented a brand new word, say a scroggle or something. But they said, no, 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 let's call that a mouse. And everybody picked up and said, oh, yeah, of course, that's a mouse. And the interesting thing is that if you have lots of little mice running around eating cheese, they are mice, plural. But if you've got lots of these boxes for your computer, they're probably mouses, which is interesting. It is, and of course the uh, modern computer mouse uh, tends to not have a tail at all or in any way, shape or form. It's a Wi-Fi mouse. Um, now there's a word, we don't know Wi-Fi, comes from hi-fi. Now hi-fi means high fidelity or very, very high quality sound. And then someone invented the wireless version without a, a wire, so they called it Wi-Fi. But no one knows what the fi means in Wi-Fi. We just know what the fire means in high cool. five, but not Wi-Fi. I mean, some, yeah, words, some cool. words just sound cool, right? Um, Professor yeah. Rolly Sussex, uh, having a word in your ear this afternoon, we've been hearing from the Year 6 class at Ipswich North Primary School, but you're welcome to phone through with a question or a comment for Rolly on one three hundred triple two six twelve. That's one three hundred triple two. 612. You can call now, 1300 612. Uh, what a great answer for Ruby. We'll get to Jessica and Mia in a moment, Rolly, but I want to take you to the Sunshine Coast now, where yes. Glenn has a question. Something you've noticed that's different between yourself and your daughter, Glenn. Good afternoon. Yeah, how are you going? Great, thanks. Um, thanks, thanks for having me. Look, um, bring and take. I'll, t I'll mm. say to her, I'll make sure you take that along. And she'll say, I better make sure I bring it with me. What's mm -hmm. correct? <laughs> it depends which point of view you take. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're sitting in a place and you're going, shall we say, for a picnic, you say, I better take that today. But if I'm already at the picnic, I might bring up a friend and say, hey, could you please bring some soft drinks? In other words, I'm already there and they're bringing it to me. So, strictly speaking, taking it is from where I am to somewhere else, and, and bringing it is bringing it from somewhere else to where I am. But nowadays, a lot of us just use them more or less interchangeably. Um, you know, we're, we're going on a picnic. Can you, can you bring some biscuits? Now, yeah. I think you'd probably say take because we're both going to another place, but bring is so frequently used, and I think it's more, I think you're right, actually, it's more common among younger people than it is among my generation. Good question. All right. Thank you. Right. I wonder if it has anything to do with the rise of uh, you know, movie titles like Bring It On and the expression often heard in popular music, you know, you know, bring it, bring it, you know, it's sort of 
dropped into the vernacular, hasn't it, Rolly? I think, you know, you've probably got something there because something like that can give words a sudden boost and mm. they become very much more visible, even though bring and take are both very common. And so that one gets a bit of an edge and people start using it for other purposes as well. On ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland, 20 minutes past two, one three hundred triple two six twelve is the phone number you can use to speak with Roly. That's one three hundred triple two six twelve. My name is Kat. Tina is on the Gold Coast. Hello, Tina. What would you like to know? Hi, Kat. So I've heard many, many times, this is more a question of usage, really. People say on behalf of myself and someone on behalf of my wife and myself on behalf of myself and blah 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 so i wanted to know what is the correct usage for when does one use my and when does one use myself good question okay or me for that matter yep no no you got it yes thank you yes Yes, okay here we go um the the self ones they're called reflexives and uh, myself himself yourself ourselves and so on And the first meaning of those is when you do something to yourself. I'm going to dress myself, I'm going to shave myself or whatever. So that's one use. The other one is emphatic. I myself really think that that's wrong. And both of those are perfectly correct. But uh, a a supermarket not far from me actually handed out a sign to, um, to customers a while ago saying, if anyone has a complaint, they should see myself as soon as possible. (laughs) And that was actually bad English. And I almost took my custom elsewhere. Um, So that I think people are worried about using me because, no, Johnny and me is going to the shop. Now, that's wrong. And you know it's wrong because you take Johnny and and me is going to the shop obviously is wrong. So you've got to say Johnny and I. Exactly. Mm. But people start thinking, oh, I don't know when to use me. So I'd better use something else. And so they pop in the myself, which is, it sort of sounds important and longer and so on. I'm afraid it's actually wrong. Good. As I suspected. Thank you, Rolly. I hope that's not you and your husband, because Kat and I had to take <laughs> great care when getting in the middle of grammatical battles in families. <laughs> well, my, my children and I often have these um, very, yes, very loud discussions, debates regarding <laughs> this very issue. So thank you for clarifying. Okay. Why don't you record some and send them a tape? Will oh, you yeah. We'll put it to air. <laughs> Tina, thank you so much. Tina on the Gold Coast. Uh, Professor Rolly Sussex with you. My name's Kat. Yeah, Kat, do you, do you want some more word origins? I've got a couple of interesting ones. Oh, lovely. Sure. Yes, please. Where does, where does the sandwich come from? The Earl of? Yeah, well done. And you know how? He had a thing for cards and convenience That's eating. That's the one. You've got the story, almost all of it. Um, he, was, he was playing cards. He didn't want to be interrupted. He felt hungry, and he said to his butler, go and whip me up something nice to eat. And so the butler took some pieces of bread and put some meat and other things on top of it and probably some pickle. And uh, he was the person who actually invented it, but Milord Sandwich gave his name to it and got all the credit, which is unfair. Typical. Typical. <gasps> all right. <sighs> Uh, we'll uh, hear from Jessica now from Ipswich North State School, Ruby's classmate, and then we'll keep taking your calls on one three hundred triple two six twelve. Now, Jessica uh, wondered about letters. Uh, this is what Jessica would like to know, Rolly. My name is Jessica. I'm in Year Five, and my question is: Why are letters ignored in words such as pterodactyl? 
Indeed. Why are these poor letters ignored, Rolly? Okay. The first answer is that we've borrowed words from another language, and pterodactyl actually comes from Greek. And it contains PT, and no ordinary English word starts with PT, and we find it hard to say. And so, as a matter of habit, we've just left the first one off. And that happens, if you think about it, with pneumonia, which is PN, we leave off the P, and PS in psychology, and in GN, in gnome, we've left the G off, and in MN, there's a word mnemonic, which is a, a, a way you remember things. So when we borrow words from another language and they've got sounds or sequences of sounds that we can't man manage, then we sometimes simplify things to make it easier for us, which just means we're lazy because the Germans borrowed psychology and they say psychologie and uh, the French have psychologie. So they can do it. Why can't we? The answer is, nah, well, too hard. <laughs> Second enough. source is words in English which used to have those sounds pronounced but over time, they've kind of fallen out. So K-N-I-G-H-T is an interesting example because it used to be knicht and it's now pronounced knight. And, you know, someone who rides around on a horse wearing armor. And that happened because, again, they can think two consonants at the start of a word, a bit hard, and we just simplified things to make it consistent with other English words starting with N. Then there's our odd friend X. And if you think about a xylophone, now X is normally KS in English, isn't it? Like box and fax and so on, and vax for that matter, for vaccination. So why does xylophone end up with a Z sound? And the answer is that it was xulon, xulon, KS in ancient Greek, and that meant wood. And a xylophone is something which has wooden bars which make a sound. The xulon is wood and phone is the Greek word for sound. And when we borrowed that into English, we said, we've got no English words that go x, so we'll make it into something we can pronounce. And we've got xylophone. And finally, yes, you and I and Kat and everybody else, when we're in a hurry, sometimes leave sounds out. Yes. Right? So <laughs> if you happen to back barrack for Essendon, a lot of people say Essendon, Essendon, and you leave out the N, all right? And we've had a lot of discussion about Australia, rather than Australia, because that's le, ye, and the, the two sounds again, we leave off the first one, Australia. It makes it easier to pronounce, even though it is, we ought to do better with the name of our country. I feel the um, most ignored letter in the word used most often would have to be the N in Wednesday, right, Rolly? Oh, yes. Um, and also the R in things like February or library, mm. because trying try to say R in syllables which are one after the other is actually quite difficult because the r in english is made with your tongue curled up and back it's called retroflex and it's not like the r in italian which you i know you can do beautifully or like the r in french and library is a bit of a battle so a lot of people just say library uh shirley is into Wumba. uh shirley you have a question for professor Rowley sussex about um either the weather or food i'm not quite sure which is which hello uh, hello. How are you? Very well, thank you, Shirley. What would you like to know? Um, the question was, when do you use damper or dampener? Um, you oh. put a damper on something or you put yes. a dampener on a 
Okay. Uh, damper is, I think, most of all in, in Australia anyway, is a sort of bread. Um, and it's, uh, it's made with un, unleavened flour in, a, in a, a, a cooking container and so on. And you bake it in the ashes. So that's damper. Um, it can mean um, to have a, a subduing effect. You know, this person was, was a real damper on conversation, meaning they, they act in such a way that they, you know, everybody else feels they don't want to participate, right? Now, dampener is, is a bit more technical, and it means to, to have a depressing or subduing effect on. So um, the result, our, our team played so well that it was a dampener on the rest, sorry, so badly, it was a real dampener on the rest of the evening. So you can use either. Damper is much more common, and it also means bread. Dampener means just an effect which makes you feel flat and depressed. Oh, thank you. I do okay. have another question. Is that yes, by all means. I was reading a magazine, a travel magazine, and mm -hmm. the sentence was, lots of cattle and hawks are cir still circling above, and it didn't mm -hmm. have a comma after cattle and before and. Mm -hmm. um, lots of cattle and... Hawks, birds. Hawks, Okay. Yes. Um, now, whether you put a comma before and or not is actually a, quite a, a contentious matter. But here, there were lots of cattle. They're on the ground. The hawks are circling above. They're in a different place. And you need a comma to separate out this bit. There are two kinds of observations going on here. If you like to say, there were lots of cattle and horses in the field, then they're in the same sort of place and the and joins them all together and you don't need a comma. But I think in your example, you would preferably have a comma there to say... I'm looking at the ground, there are lots of cattle there. I now look up and there are lots of hawks circling around as well. And so that separates out into two different kinds of observations. Oh boy, Rolly, just... Yeah, it gets worse, it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Shirley, great questions, thank you. We'll keep moving this afternoon because many of you do wish to speak with Rolly. It's half past two, my name is Kat Feeney and you're on ABC Radio, Brisbane and Queensland. Professor Rolly Sussex answering your questions about language and linguistics to Beachmere now, Rolly, and Flav, uh, because Flav, you think you have an answer for us. Uh, we were talking about hi-fi and then the emergence of Wi-Fi and wondering what the... Phi stood for with Y for wireless. Do you have an mm. answer? Oh, Rolly and Kat, I'm not really sure about this because I'm not hideously technical, but I think it is wireless fidelity. Oh, mm. okay. That's what Good people thought yeah. because high fidelity, yes, wireless fidelity. But uh, I looked this up in a technical dictionary of English and they said Wi-Fi was certainly made on the pattern of hi-fi because, you know, the yeah. two words are very, very similar in sound. Mm. But... The actual phi, there's no real fidelity in yeah. a, a wireless connection, as it were. So I think what someone has done is they've taken an existing use of a word, they've made a similar word, but mm. they've actually left us with a little puzzle that's never been solved. Right. It, it does sound good, though, doesn't it? It does. Can I ask it a very quick sound. question? Please, yeah. about well, that, that's what's called a folk etymology. Yeah. A folk etymology is, is something which yeah. is plausible and which people right. look at and think, yeah, that has to be right. Mm. But unless we can go back to, say, the person who invented it, um, <laughs> then we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Could I ask another quickie, Rolly, please? Go um, ahead. The use of is and has. I hear mm -hmm. frequently things like the minister is come to Rockhampton. 
surely oh. that should be the minister has come. Yes. Um, the, the trouble is that with is and has, if they're pronounced quickly and not stressed, the minister's come, the minister's come. It's rather difficult to hear whether it's an is or a has unless you know how to write it. And we get the similar problem with I should have come and some people write I should of come. Right? Now in both cases, the problem is that two different words are pronounced the same and people then get confused as to what they should be writing. But you're quite correct. The minister has come. If you say the minister is come, that used to be around in English at the time of the King James Bible, which was published in 1611. But we have changed since then, and the past tense has to be has, not is. So you're dead right. Segwaying beautifully from Flav's question is Lindsay's question into Woomba. Lindsay, whether it's the is or has, it's the coming or the caming or the come or the came that you would like to talk about. <laughs> making around Centrelink. I never thought I would... Uh, I, I never thought I would, and my office is opposite um, our local Centrelink uh, office in Orange, and I couldn't believe the numbers of people, in particular the young people, who were standing outside with looks of worry and distress and anguish on their faces. And then along came JobKeeper, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, that helped keep... I think we're losing you there, Lindsay. There's some interference with your line. So, Lindsay's question was, Rolly, the, yes. the usage of came or come? Oh, for the past tense? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, there's quite a lot of bother with, with different forms of English words, even with common ones like come. And the, the past tense of come is came. You know, he, he came home at five o'clock. And to say he come home at five o'clock is incorrect, but it's very common in speech. And if you think about it, um, the Americans say, uh, I, last year I, um, I bought a coat and last year it fit me very well. Now, you and I would say it fitted me very well. But in some verbs in English, the past tense is the same as the present. It fit me very well. And so I'm afraid that come is starting to lose came. I think that's a great pity and I would like to insist that came is kept and you draw a line in the sand and don't don't give in. Anshu at Cooperoo. Hello. Uh, you have a question for Rolly. What would you oh, like yes. to know? Okay, I have a strange question. Um, when we were growing up as kids, if an adult asked you, would you like something, the answer was usually yes, please, or no, please. You know, yes, sorry, yes, th yes, please, and no, thank you. I find lately when I ask the kids that have come over, would you like a drink, they say, I don't mind. And... <gasps> I like what don't you mind? You don't mind me asking you. You don't mind eating that. You don't mind. I think like, it's just I, I get really confused. Like, is that a yes or a no? Mm. You know, mm. what do you mean you don't mind? <laughs> like, of course you don't mind. You're at my house. Like, I'm asking you something. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> okay, good question. And good the, these uh, bits of language between people sometimes change when you wouldn't expect them to. And I would have thought that yes, please, and yes, thank you are pretty stable. But I don't mind means um, if it's not too much trouble, yeah, okay, please, yeah, that'd be very pleasant. But I hope I'm not putting you out sort of thing. That is what I would understand by I don't mind. But you really need to get hold of someone about five to eight years old and say to them, uh, well, look, could you tell me, do you really want one or not? Um, the other interesting thing here, by the way, is Australian English. We tend to say thanks before we've actually got something. So if you're in England or in America, you'd say, please, could you give me so-and-so? And when you get it, you say, thank you. 
In Australia, we often say, I'll have one of those, thanks. Which is very confusing to someone from America, but they say, I haven't given it to you yet. What's, what's all this thanks about? So you have to watch out for that when you travel overseas, as we will be doing shortly. Right, a preemptive thanks, Matt at Eagleby. Thanks for your call. Uh, which is the silent letter in which word, sir? Hello. Hi. Um, yes, so I, I saw a meme on the internet the other day, um, basically making the question or asking the question, is the letter S or the letter C silent in the word sent? S-C-E-N-T. Yeah, yeah oh. S-C-E-N-T. Oh, All right. Um, I think what, what's happened there is that we've we've borrowed the word with an S-C in it from, uh, from for, uh, I think in this case, French is like scenario and other S-C words, or even science for that matter, which is another S-C. And uh, in the, the two letters bef- together make the sound S in the language we borrowed it from. We've borrowed the word and we borrowed the spelling but we've left something which actually doesn't sit with English spelling quite well. And so it, it's, it's huh. impossible really to say which of them is silent because together they make just one sound. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for that. Stay okay. dry and not damp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a head scratcher, Matt. Well done. Thank you, Matt yeah. and Eagleby. Uh, it's, after, it's just about 25 minutes to three on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. Taking a couple more of your calls, a few more of your calls, I should say, because uh, we're more than two, less than five. And before we do, I did have one more head scratcher for you from North yes. Ipswich State Lovely. School, Rolly. This is from Mia. Let's see if we can help Mia out this afternoon. Hi, my name is Mia. And I am in year six. My question is, how did the English language become the English language? Ah, okay. Now, this takes us back to about 500 AD. And what happened was that in that, at that time, England was inhabited by the Celts. Uh, and they're the modern Welsh and the modern Irish and the modern Scots. And they were having trouble keeping order, so they invited some tribes from over the channel to come and help them keep order. And these were the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes, and they came from Germany, Denmark and Holland. And the Angles, A-N-G-L-E-S, spoke a language which was written E-N-G-L-I-S-C, pronounced English, and that's where we get the name of our language from. In those days, it wasn't at all like modern English. Uh, if we heard it, we wouldn't understand would hardly understand a word. But they then, these the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes, um, put down their roots in England, said, this is very nice, we're going to stay, and they expanded, and they pushed the poor old Celts up into Scotland and west into Wales and Ireland. And their language became the language of England. Now, it took a long time for English to get established. Uh, in 1066, William the Conqueror came over from France and beat the English at the Battle of Hastings, and he spoke French. And so for about 400 years, the dominant language in England in the courts and in you know, the upper parts of society was French. And it took English a long while to come back from that. But nowadays, of course, English is spoken by maybe two billion people worldwide. Nobody really knows. Um, it, wherever you go as a tourist, probably someone will understand an en- English. Uh, and if they don't understand English, then probably they won't understand any other language as well. So English uh, was, if you like, the the language of some muscle men uh, that were brought over the channel about 450 AD. And then they became, they were very, very successful and eventually created what is now the world language and it's called English and it's ours. But of course, English with an I is Mm. odd. It should be English, 
Right? It started being called English for some reason no one knows about 1600, and that pronunciation has persisted ever since. There you have it, Mia, from Professor Rolly Sussex on ABC Radio Brisbane in Queensland. Now, that's it from Ipswich North today. If you are a member of a school community uh, that would like to put some questions to Rolly, then all you need to do is call now and register your interest. one 300 That's one 300 If your school, your class, your students would like to ask Professor Rolly Sussex their questions about language and linguistics. Three more questions from you, dear listeners, this afternoon, beginning with Lenny in Cairns. Hey, Lenny, what would you like to know? Good afternoon, Kat. Good afternoon, Professor Rowley. Hi. Um, yes, uh, my grandfather used to say English um, with an E sound. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. By the way, I was having a conversation with a friend today and she told me that she had read that when Dr Jenner had discovered the smallpox uh, vaccination. Mm. um, There were anti-vaxxers around at that time too. Oh, yes. Who didn't want to put something into their bodies that they didn't know about. Um, And um, I'm just wondering what the root of the word vaccine is and how um, anti-vaxxers might have been spelt in those days or... Right. How you spell well, it the now, because I don't know Jenner, in fact, it. invented the word vaccine. It wasn't around before him, and people didn't like it because he actually took the scabs from people who had cowpox, and made a little slit in the skin of people who didn't have it, and uh, put the the bits of the the scabs under it, and that actually stopped them getting smallpox, which was a terrible disease that killed five hundred million people. And that was how vaccination was discovered. And it came from the Latin word vacca, V-A-C-C-A, which means a cow. And so from cowpox, which is what the milkmaids had and which stopped them getting smallpox, we get the word vacca, which gave us vaccine. And in those days, anti-vaxxer would, I don't know how they'd have spelt it because they didn't have, well, they had them. There were a lot of people who said, I'm not going to have that stuff. Mm. But uh, nowadays, of course, we've got X and we've even got XX, which is a very unusual thing in English. Thank you, Lenny. We'll just keep moving uh, to Toowoomba now. And Tom, g'day, Tom. Afternoon. Uh, Professor Rowley, um, did I hear you once, or not quite recently, advise that the ABC has a special word manual or something of that nature that everyone's supposed to follow for pronunciations, etc.? Mm-hmm. ABC because used to have I'm something just... called... Yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah, go ahead. It used to have something called SCOS, the Standing Committee on Spoken English, and they would meet and put out a bulletin every month or so with uh, words that they'd heard mispronounced or guidance on how to use the, uh, the language properly. Um, that vanished some time ago, and now there's a man called Webb, who is our language conscience, and he you'll see him writing on the ABC every now and again with, with uh, pieces about um, difficult issues of pronunciation and usage. But as far as I know, Kat, I don't think there's a manual, is there? No, indeed. We've had uh, Tiger Webb uh, on the program on the on occasion, Rolly, talking about uh, the sort of way language continues to grow and evolve, much like you do regularly. But there isn't a mm-hmm. um, a manual per se. Tom, what, what's your question? Well, look, I ask this because, let's say, the host of Mastermind, who shall remain nameless, mm-hmm. used, pronounces simultaneous as simultaneous and dynasty mm-hmm. is dynasty, and then we yeah. have another young fellow I hear from, a reporter from time to time, for eligibility referred to as eligibility, and um, um, 
another one is, um, for example, um, uh, you graduate high school. You don't graduate mm. from high school, as we used yes. in our day. I mean, mm-hmm. so does anyone actually monitor it and draw their attention to the fact that this really isn't how us Australians speak? Yes, uh, and in fact, Tiger himself um, advises or reminds people from time to time. Um, simultaneously and Dynasty are both American um, and graduating high school. Uh, it gets worse than that. We used to graduate from university. Uh, now in America, children uh, can even graduate from kindergarten, which seems to me very strange. Um, graduate used to be after lots of exams and so on, achieving a certain standard. Eligibility is an odd one. Uh, because there's no reason why you should shift the stress. I'm afraid it's just one of these ones that crept in, and I hope it creeps out again. Thank you very much. Tom, at Toowoomba, we will just keep moving uh, this afternoon. And again, our last question from Toowoomba and from you, Deb. Hello. How can Rolly help? Hi, Rolly. Um, Just wondering about amount and number for describing the size of a crowd. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, you're quite right. And it's like fewer and less. Um, amount should be something that you can't count, like, uh, so, you know, a kilo of butter, uh, a litre of beer or whatever. And number should be used for things which you can count, uh, like people. But I'm afraid the two are getting very much mixed up. And number is getting squeezed out by amount. And people are using amount for people and count things. And there, if you go to your supermarket, it'll probably say... Um, this, you can go down this checkout line for 12 items or less. And that should be 12 items or fewer because those are things you can count. I'm sorry, the English is, is uh, losing some of its well-defined areas of good usage. And the, the one that wins out is often the shorter. So less rather than fewer, I'm afraid. Well observed. You're dead on cut. Thank you, Deb. On ABC Radio Brisbane in Queensland, it is a quarter to three. My name is Kat Feeney, Professor Rowley Sussex, your Lord of Language, with you, wrapping up another week of wonderful wordplay. Uh, Rolly, we can't say goodbye without hearing from you. Your last word, please. This is from Ian Fleming, the man who wrote the James Bond books. And he was, he was thinking, how do you describe a horse? And he said, dangerous at both ends and rather uncomfortable in the middle. <laughs> Pleasure and privilege as ever, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kat. I'll be back next week. On your radio and online. At home or on the road. This is ABC Radio.